This morning we are beginning our study together uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel is a book in the Old Testament. Uh, it uh, is going to help uh, fill in some of the, uh, the aspects of God's promise that he, he gave even from the beginning, uh, from Genesis 3, as he promised one who would come who would defeat uh, the serpent. Uh, we've, uh, we've seen over the past couple of weeks as we've been talking about uh, this uh, Jesus who has come of the king, the songs that we sung this morning talk about one who would be from the, the branch of David, from the seed of Jesse. How is that going to come in place? Where did the, the king come from and the people of Israel? How did David get to the, the, to the, to the throne? How did God organize and, uh, and uh, work in his people in a, in a way that there would come this king who would rule over his people and lead them so that the, the good news would come to the nations. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel begins to fill in some of those questions for us. Uh, at the beginning of Samuel, we are going to meet uh, Samuel, the prophet. And through uh, his work, through the rest of this book, we're going to see the rise of many in Israel, the fall of many in Israel, we're going to see the judgment of sin. We're going to see uh, salvation and deliverance come and the establishment of one that God is going to promise that one will come from his line who will rule forever. Uh, this helps us understand more of the gospel, more of the work of Christ and what he has done for us. So uh, this morning uh, we'll start here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you want to follow along in one of the black Bibles there on your seats, this is on page 225. We're going to be looking at all of chapter 1 together this morning. So uh, please follow along with me, uh, beginning there in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of, of Yahweh. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though Yahweh had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because Yahweh had closed her womb. So it went on, year by year, as often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. She was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant 
and remember me and not forget your servant, but will forgive but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, and he, and she said Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of Yahweh and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may Yahweh establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and a fa of flour and a skin of wine, And she brought him to the house of Yahweh at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh. And he worshiped Yahweh there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have left us uh, true and sufficient revelation of yourself. We thank you that what we are holding in our hands and reading and studying this morning is not the mere words of men that it's the very Word of God. And we pray that your powerful and active Word uh, would cut to our, our hearts, show us our need, show us your sufficiency, and may we find grace in Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. So, uh, kids, this morning, this sermon... Is brought to you by the letter S. So what I want you to do is listen as I go through the sermon for all of the different words that I say that start with the letter S. You don't need to count every single S word I say, but just see if you can keep track of the different S words I say. And you, if you write them down or keep a tick mark for them, you can uh, bring it up and show me show me after the service. There's there's quite quite a few that that come come up. 
So the, the first thing that we want to understand is we're, we're gaining the, the context of this entire book, is we're trying to understand who our God is and what he's doing. Is, uh, first, it's, it's helpful for us to look at the situation that we find here in the beginning of, uh, of 1 Samuel. And we'll notice that, that, that the situation that we, we see this family in at the beginning of this book is one of sin, of shame, and suffering. Notice the sin that we encounter. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. Two wives. You see, God's intention and design for humanity and for marriage was that marriage should be between one man and one woman. But here, for some reason, it doesn't tell us why, but Elkanah decided that he wasn't going to follow God's design and intention. Elkanah was going to do what was right in his own eyes, what he was longing and desiring to do. And so he took on two wives, disregarding God as his as his Lord and his King. And here we see him and also his family is tied up in experiencing the consequences and struggles of his sin. Notice we also see a context of shame. Look in verse 2. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children but Hannah had no children. In the culture at this time, uh, to, to be barren, to not have a child, was a, a place of deep shame. The Bible doesn't speak of that situation and circumstance that, that, uh, that a, a woman or, or a couple would find themselves in as being something uh, that, that the Bible views as being a, a shameful thing that you should bear. But the experience and the perspective of the culture and of women and men who experienced it was to feel this burden of shame. And look at how Hannah experiences this shame as it is heaped upon her by Peninnah. Look in verse 6. And her rival, that's referring to Peninnah, again, that's flowing out of this sin Elkanah has had. Her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because Yahweh had closed her womb. And notice that it continues to go on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her over and over Hannah cannot turn or escape this feeling and this experience and this great burden of shame that she feels inside, that Peninnah continues to heap upon her. And it's this experience of, of, of sin and shame that these people find themselves, and Hannah in particular, in a place of great suffering. Look in verse 7 and 8. So it went on year by year 
as often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And then down in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. And then again, over in verse 16, as it highlights the struggles and the, the, the suffering that Hannah is experiencing. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. She is suffering. She's suffering deeply at what she has experienced, at what her husband is putting her through, about these, this, this trial that she's, she's, she's going through of, of not having a, a child. And she is hurting. And it's, it's not just Hannah. It's not just this family. It's not just Elkanah. This, in fact, is the situation that the entire nation finds themselves in. The, the book of, of 1 Samuel is happening uh, in the midst of what is the time period that's going on that's covered in, in the book of Judges. Think about the time when, if you've heard stories of Samson, this is the same period of time. The repeated refrain at the end of the book of Judges is this. At that time, there was no king in Israel and the people did what was right in their own eyes. The nation was full of people who had disregarded their God, who was pursuing after other gods and sinning against the Lord. Uh, they found themselves in experiencing shame because in this repeated cycle where they would sin and rebel against God and call out to Him, He would provide a, a deliverer. But then they would sin again. God would, in discipline, punish His people to move their hearts back to him, they would experience the outside oppression and suffering that would come from the nations. And they were grieving and hurting and longing. This is the situation that all of the people find themselves in. This isn't odd for us to hear, is it? For all of us know what it is like to live in a world and to live in the midst of of situations and circumstances where we are affected and burdened by sin, our own, the sin of others against us. We know what it's like to bear and experience shame. Shame that, that may be legitimate at some times due to our sin and rebellion against God, but many times the shame that we are experiencing is illegitimate shame that is heaped upon us outside from others, and we can't help but to view ourselves that way. And that leads all of this to a sense of deep suffering and pain and hurting and longing for something, something to remove the guilt, the hurt, the shame, the effects of the sin, the suffering that we're experiencing, someone who would enter in and come? What do we do 
when we find ourselves in a world and living lives where we are hit and burdened by sin, by shame, and suffering. Notice where the book of Samuel points us in these early chapters is to look to and hope in our sovereign God. Look in verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh. That term, Yahweh of hosts, this is the first time it's mentioned in the scriptures. It's going to come up many times in the book of Samuel and in the later writing prophets. Host is talking about a, a gathering, a large group. Ways that word is used other places in scripture. Host describes the host in heaven. Stars, sun, moon, planets. God is the God of these created things in the sky. Hosts describe the angel armies that fight and battle on behalf of our God. He is God of these heavenly hosts and armies. Hosts describe the people of Israel. Their armies, their people. He is their God, their Lord, their King. Here, the book of Samuel, in using these, this term and this title for our God, is drawing our attention to who the God is who rules and reigns in the midst of the situations that we find ourselves in, where sin and shame and suffering seem to prevail. He is the sovereign one who is Lord and King over all things in heaven and over all things in earth. He is the powerful one. He is the mighty one. Notice the extent to which the sovereignty of our God extends even into the situation that Hannah is facing. Look in verse 5. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. That's speaking of uh, Elkanah when they were doing the the peace offerings at the, the, the yearly feast. Because he loved her, though Yahweh had closed her womb. Notice that that same terminology is repeated in verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. What? The, The scriptures are ascribing this experience that Hannah is facing to God? It's something he has done? That may be something that we we struggle and wrestle with. Why would he do this? Does this mean that he's not good? That he's not loving? There's places in Scripture where we we see God acting and and working and moving. uh, Reasons why we experience different things in our lives. Sometimes it is the Lord brings things into our lives because of the sin we've experienced. But there's no uh, 
details here that would tell us that Hannah is being punished for her own sin. Who is the arrogant and prideful and sinful one in this passage? Is it not Peninnah, the provoker, the rival, the knife stabber and twister? No, if anyone would be punished that way, you would think it would be Peninnah. But no, it's, it's fateful Hannah. Sometimes the suffering that we experience is because of a, the broken and fallen world that we experience and find ourselves in. Sometimes it's because God has fuller and deeper purposes that we can't comprehend or understand. In fact, what we see here is it's pointing us to God is sovereign over everything that anyone experiences, including his people, including the hard things, including the tough things, including the difficult and bad things. Sometimes we have a hard time with that, but what's the alternative? He doesn't have sovereignty over those things. It's outside of his control. Somebody else is acting and working and moving that God doesn't have power to act and move. The scriptures say no. The God that you serve is the sovereign, almighty, powerful one. And he is in control of everything in heaven and on earth, even the tough and difficult things, the trials, the struggles, the suffering that you're facing is somehow working as a part of his great plan. Notice how Hannah responds to that. You would think if that is true, that Hannah would be maybe upset, distant from this God. Notice, not only does she understand him to be sovereign, but she understands him to be sympathetic. Notice what she does in verse 10. She was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh, and she wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Then in verse 19 and 20, uh, as we hear about God's work, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before Yahweh, then went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. Hannah's understanding of the character of this sovereign God is one who wants to hear her tears. He knows her grief. He knows her struggles. And she feels safe to come to weep bitterly before him, to cry out in her anxiety and her vexation, confident that he listens to her and he hears her. He's not cruel. He's there in the midst of it. And you see Hannah entrusting herself to this sympathetic and sovereign God. You find it hard in the midst of the situation that you find yourself in, the sin, the shame, the suffering, to call out to God, to think 
that one, he has any ability to work and move in your life. Or two, maybe you think he doesn't care. He's not sympathetic. The beginning of the book of 1 Samuel would begin to shift and turn our focus in a different way. Here, maybe if you're experiencing the things that Hannah is struggling with, particularly thinking of, uh, of, of the struggle with, with not having children, it can be a hard and difficult thing. But be encouraged that your God knows your tears. He knows your pain. And he's there and present with you and invites and encourages you to come to him in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your suffering. You may say, but I've done that. Maybe it's not childlessness. Maybe it's other struggles that you're experiencing. Hardship from other people, rejection, oppression, abuse, manipulation. I've been calling out to this sovereign, sympathetic God, so you say. But he doesn't work like I always want him to. Isn't that the case? This this sovereign and sympathetic God is also slow. He's slow to work sometimes, isn't he? Notice, notice here in this, this context. Back up in verse 7. And Hannah's shame and in her suffering. It says in verse 6, Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because Yahweh had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. Every single time they went up to Shiloh, Peninnah provoked her. Every year or two, Peninnah would show up with another son, with another daughter. Peninnah would have more children to share her portion of her food with. Hannah continued to sit there alone. And year after year, Hannah would call out to God. There seemed to be no answer. There seemed to be no answer. There seemed to be no answer. But then God does act, doesn't he? He, he? he remembers, it tells us over in verse 19. That term doesn't mean God forgot. The remembrance in that language used in Scripture is talking about God uh, looking on his people and acting in uh, an active and redemptive way. So he remembers, he begins to act in Hannah's life. Uh, but, but notice, e- even then, uh, the, the, the child comes, but it says in verse 20, in due time, it took time for this baby to be conceived. And then before he's even brought up to the temple, it tells us in verses 21 and following that he needed to be weaned. Uh, you see, that the slowness of God's salvation begins to show itself. Hannah had to wait so long for God to work and move. But remember, who else is suffering and struggling? It's the people of God. They're struggling in their rebellion and their sin and their shame and their suffering. And Samuel is the beginning of God's answer to what he's going to do. But God doesn't act like that. It may have seemed like that in the moment, if you're looking in on Hannah's life, but I bet if you were to talk to Hannah, she would say, no, I waited a long time. 
But notice how God begins to work in his people's lives by sending a baby. A baby that they had to wait on. A baby that needed to be weaned. A baby that had to be sent to the temple or to the tabernacle at that point. They had to wait for him to grow up, to gain and grow in wisdom and godliness. (laughs) There's so much going on and messed up in the people of Israel at that time. They have no king. The priesthood is corrupt. There is no prophet. And yet Samuel is going to bring about a work of redemption and begin to work in the midst of these people, but they have to wait. God is slow. Not always working on our timetable. Not always working like we want. You tired on waiting on God? Sometimes wish that he was following your planner and working the way that you desired and intended. A friend of mine in Clemson, uh, when he would get work done on his house, there was always this one guy he would go and hire. Um, he was a, a really strange guy. He wouldn't really talk to you much as he was doing his, his uh, carpentry. You know who or what he would talk to? The boards. He would talk to the wood. He would go out and look through the, the wood in my friend's driveway and say, Oh, you're a pretty nice boy. Come in. Let's find out what you're going to become and what you're going to be transformed to. And he would work with it on the saw and transform it and then build and construct all this stuff. Now, as you can imagine, he only worked by himself. And he was extremely slow. But what my friend began to, to learn is that he surrendered himself to this guy's timetable because without a doubt every single time he finished although it took much longer than he was hoping for or thought the work and the result was more beautiful than he could understand he needed to surrender himself to this confusing slow worker and notice do you see that happening in this passage that Hannah and others are surrendering themselves to this slow and sovereign God. We've already seen it with Hannah as she's calling out and praying to the Lord. She's surrendering her fears. She's surrendering her anxieties, her vexation, her worries. She's entrusting and giving them over to her God. But you see, it goes even much further. What happened once Samuel was born? She vowed to God that she would give him over to him forever. Now, vow, she's not bargaining with God in that prayer. Vows, we saw this when we went through Leviticus. A vow is a way to go on record before God and others of of articulating a prayer that is so deep and worked down into your heart and your experience that you want to go on record saying, this means so much to me that I want to make sure that I appropriately respond in gratitude and thanksgiving to God once it comes. And Hannah says, this is so deep that I'm going to give this child over. This child that I'm hoping will remove my shame. I'm not going to be with him long. I want to surrender him over to the Lord. And we saw that language reiterated over and over again. That in verse 11, that she was going to give him to Yahweh all the days of his life. That in verse 22, that he would dwell forever in God's house. In verse 27 and 28, she actually says it like this. 
Uh, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to Yahweh. As long as he lives, he is lent to Yahweh. A better translation there is probably given over. Now, she's not lending him like it's a tool or a book. Uh, She is giving him over to the Lord. She is surrendering. She is saying, Lord, I'm trusting in you and recognizing that everything comes from you, and I want to surrender everything back of all this work that you're doing in my life, the struggles, the difficulty, the salvation, the deliverance, would be given over to your glory to magnify and be used for the spread and proclamation of your name. I want Samuel to be used before you. You see, it's possible that uh, Elkanah was uh, a Levite. And usually you wouldn't, if you were a descended uh, a Levite, you wouldn't have started serving in the temple until you were 25. But Hannah says, no, Samuel's going to begin from three years old. He was also a, uh, um, a Nazarite, one whose hair wasn't cut, it tells us. That could have been for any period of time. Yet she says from his birth, this is going to be true of him. She is holy and fully giving every gift that God gives to her over to the Lord for his glory and his praise because she trusts him and she's surrendering herself to him. Why? Because she's confident in the sufficiency of the salvation that God brings. Do you notice that in this passage? Uh, first, we, we see it in verse 26 and 27. And she says, this is when she's speaking to Eli. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, saying, praying to Yahweh. For this child I prayed, and Yahweh has granted me my petition that I made to him. She's acknowledging God acted and worked. I prayed. And he gave me this son. Now, that's not always our experience, is it? To pray something to God, and he always answers the way that we want. But I want us to notice and look in the larger context of what is going on. What is Hannah longing for? Hannah is longing for a son who will enter into her life and into her world, who will bring deliverance from the effects of sin, who will bring deliverance from the effects of shame, and who will bring deliverance from the effects of suffering. And at first, that happens with Samuel in her life. But the sufficiency of what God is doing isn't just to work in Hannah. What we're going to see is that this Samuel begins to be a prophet among the people. He begins to bring a work and renew and purify the priesthood within Israel. And Samuel will be the one who anoints a king who rules and reigns over his people. And who will descend and come from the one that Samuel puts on the throne? It'll be Jesus. Another son. Another baby. Who took a long time to enter into the world. The slowness of our God to work and operate. Look, this is where we are in the Bible at this point. Samuel, look how much farther we got to go before we get to Jesus. And look how much has already passed. The longing of the promised one from Genesis. Yet God has been at work the whole time, even when we haven't thought he was. Raising up this son. Preparing the way for him who would come. 
but not just any son, it's God's son who would take on flesh. And the sufficiency of the work that he does will be to fully and completely deal with and take away the sin of his people. To fully and completely deal with and take away the shame of his people. And to fully and completely deal with and take away the suffering of his people. He will be the true prophet. He will be the true and perfect priest. And he will be the true and perfect king. While you are waiting, waiting on Jesus to come, would you take comfort and hope that this is your king? That this is the one that God has provided for you? And even if he doesn't answer your prayers right now the way that you want, he ultimately has answered that prayer because when Jesus comes, all the concerns and all the struggles will be made right. And in fact, even now, he's present with you, loving you, walking with you through every bit of sin and shame and suffering that you're experiencing. He hears you, he loves you, and he will redeem you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that we see your work throughout the scriptures. We thank you that it is true that you act and move and enter in to the suffering and shame and sin of your people. Jesus, we pray and ask that you continue to point our hearts more and more to you. In your name we pray. Amen.